The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, then from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks again, Michael. So, like I said, uh, we're beginning a new seven-week series today, uh, and it's on the seven letters of Jesus. What do you mean the letters of Jesus? Well, this is a vision that God gave to the Apostle John. He's somewhere probably in his 90s. He's in exile on an island called Patmos, being persecuted for his faith. And it says at the beginning of Revelation that he has a vision of seven lampstands, which represent uh, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he has a vision of of the Son of Man who comes to him with a message for each one of these churches. And that Son of Man is, of course, Jesus. And the first letter of Jesus through the Apostle John is the letter to the church at Ephesus. We first see the church of Ephesus springing forth in the 19th and 20th chapter of the book of Acts. And then there's also an entire New Testament letter written to the church at Ephesus. And so, so what I want to do is start the series with this observation. If you've been in Nashville long enough, and if you're a Christian, you have probably become familiar with the concept or idea of the church consumer. The church consumer is the person who puts on a critic hat when she or he walks into a church. And there's so many churches in Nashville, you know the line, there's a church on every corner, used to be the buckle of the Bible belt, etc. And so what many people are accustomed to do in cities like Nashville is traveling from church to church with an evaluator's or a critic's hat on. And the posture of the critic goes something like this. Well, I was at that church for a little while, but I ended up moving on because I didn't feel like I was being fed. Okay? Uh, Or I liked that church for a while, but then I moved on because the music really didn't do it for me. Or I liked that church and was there for a little while, but then discovered that it wasn't diverse enough for my taste. Or I discovered there weren't enough people there like me. And my friend John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York City who tends to confront uh, fairly directly these sorts of of, uh, church consumer mindsets, said this, you don't like the music? Well, that's okay. The music's not for you. It's for someone else. You're actually not part of the audience in church. You're actually part of the choir. No matter where you're sitting in the sanctuary, 
It's a service. It's an offering to God. So the point isn't whether you like the music. The point is whether or not God likes what's going on in your heart and the hearts of everybody else that's there. Or he would also say, well, you feel like you're not being fed. Well, the point of going to church is not being fed. The point of going to church is growing up. The point of growing to church is to graduate from being a consumer of spiritual food to somebody who can feed yourself and to somebody who then pours through the energy you get from that self-feeding from the Scriptures and so on into the life of the community of the church and into the world through the church. Or my friend John might say, well, you come to church and then you say, well, these aren't really my people. Well, that's okay too because it's not about whether or not it's your people. These are God's people and these are also the people that God has chosen for you. The church is a lot like a nuclear family. You don't get to choose who you're in family with and who you have to love and who you don't have to love. Now, these are hard words, but very important ones as we approach some scathing critiques about how people think about church. And the issues of church consumerism are, are, are not new, and they're certainly not just buckle of the Bible belt things. This was a Middle Eastern problem in a part of the world where it was illegal to be a Christian. It's a human heart thing. You know, screw tape, which is sort of the fictitious but also not so fictitious senior devil created by the brilliant mind of C.S. Lewis, screw tape is mentoring a young uh, devil named Wormwood, and he says, screw tape does to Wormwood, surely you know that if a man cannot be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster and connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, being God, wants him to be a pupil. So these seven letters, what they offer to us is a true connoisseur of churches, the author and perfecter of the church himself, the architect and the builder of the church, Jesus Christ. He gives us a better vision and in, in, in all of these letters, these seven letters, he offers various affirmations to, to what's going well in the seven churches, and he also offers some pretty direct and sometimes very sharp critiques. But in each instance, unlike the connoisseur of churches that Lewis talks about, unlike the, the church consumer critic, Jesus always offers an all-knowing and therefore pinpointed accurate diagnosis of what's going on in the church that belongs to Him. And He says, I love this and I hate that. I love this and I hate that. You know, two of the churches, the only thing that Jesus offers is praise. One of the churches, the only thing that He offers is criticism. And four of the churches, he offers some affirmation and some critique. And the church at Ephesus is an affirmation critique scenario. There, there's some things that I love and there's some things that I hate, Jesus says. And so let's look at that. We've got two affirmations. We've got one criticism and then one way forward. So the two affirmations are faithful endurance and a holy hatred. So faithful endurance, we see that 
where Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, I know your toil, your patient endurance for my sake, and you've not grown weary. And uh, what they're enduring was common to the churches in the Middle East and in Asia Minor in that time of history. Persecution, rejection, slander, betrayal. What the common practice was at that point in time was if somebody was discovered to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and if they would not renounce their profession as somebody who identifies as a follower of Christ, then what, what the authorities would do is cover their bodies with tar and then light them on fire like a tiki torch while they were awake and watch them die a slow death as they burned. John chapter 15, Jesus put it this way, if the world hates you, it hated me first. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. Opposition is something to expect. Now, we live in a part of the world where we celebrate and, and enjoy this privilege that we have called free speech. They didn't have that back then. In fact, they don't have that in many parts of the world still. In fact, the statistics suggest that there are more people being persecuted for their Christian faith around the world right now than have ever been persecuted in the history of the world during any other season of history, including the first century. But for us, th these realities are kind of foreign. And for, for us, persecution and opposition happen less in terms of our bodies being burned at the stake and people taking our children away from us, and, 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 and more in terms of our ideas being attacked and our reputations being attacked because of whatever view, views we're holding in tension under Jesus Christ. On the one hand, as those who identify with Jesus Christ, we're going to be regarded as too loosey-goosey by some and too strident by others, especially those on the polar extreme of ideas. One such example was a Ronald Reagan appointee named C. Everett Koop, who was a, a surgeon and a very committed uh, follower and believer in Jesus Christ. And Reagan uh, nominated Koop to serve as the Surgeon General of the United States. And uh, Koop was mercilessly attacked during his confirmation hearings uh, because of his, uh, his pro-life belief with respect to uh, what he regarded uh, and what Christians regard as an attack, an assault, and violence toward the unborn. He even co-wrote a book with uh, the pastor, uh, Francis, pastor and philosopher uh, Francis Schaeffer, called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, about this very issue. And, and as you might imagine, he was treated with contempt by the partisan left during his confirmation hearings, but he got through his confirmation. He was appointed Surgeon General, and then sometime later, the AIDS crisis uh, happened. HIV became a known disease, and at that point in time, it was only thought to be something that afflicted uh, the community of gay men. And Coop, from his position, poured resources and energy and, and, and force toward attacking this disease that was, uh, in effect, doing violence to a certain community of people. And then he got attacked and was treated with contempt from people in his own party because that's not part of the platform. That's not one of our issues. Why are you putting resources there? 
And what the story of Coop shows us is that when you are decidedly Jesus' person, then you're going to be your own person. And you're going to depart from politically correct ideas sometimes. And you're going to be treated with some level of contempt at some point in time. If you love the whole Jesus, if you love the whole Bible, then there are going to be people to the left of you and to the right of you who are going to hate parts of you and treat you accordingly. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to be persecuted, is going to experience opposition. You know, Jesus even said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to be, bring a sword. My truth, my ideas, my words, my trajectory is going to create enmity and opposition between mothers and their daughters and fathers and their sons and brothers and their sisters. If I'm your first loyalty, then there are going to be people in the world who are not loyal to you. And it does raise the question, if we go through life as Christians and we never have anybody who treats us like an enemy, then we have to ask the honest question, who is really discipling us? Is it the culture? Is it political correctness? Is it our love of comfort? Is it our fears and our worries about being rejected? that's really discipling us and that's functioning as the Lord and Savior of our lives? You know, John Stott, the, the late Anglican minister, said that we should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases. In fact, we should be surprised if such hostility does not increase. But as for the Ephesians, Jesus commended them for their faithful endurance He also commended them for a holy hatred. They hated the same things that Jesus hated. Immoral behavior and unsound doctrine. They hated both of those things, and Jesus praised them for hating both of those things. For wrong living and wrong ideas. I know, Jesus says, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, He goes on to say, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, what's being suggested here is that hatred, of course, hatred can be a vice. It can be a very bad thing. But it can also be the expression of a virtue. Because whenever we hate something, that something is very likely a threat to or an opponent to a thing or a place or a person that we've come to love. I'm going to get aggressive with you if you get aggressive with my kids. I promise you that. And you're going to get aggressive with me if I get aggressive with your reputation or with your spouse or with something that's dear to you. Our hatreds reveal what we love. And what Jesus is saying is that some of the things that you hate reveal that you love the things that I love, some of the things that I love. You you see this in the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the furthest thing from nice. Don't ever think that Jesus is all lamb and no lion. Don't ever think that Jesus is just all gentleness and no fierceness and fury. He's not. 
mean, the Apostle Paul even writes, you know, consider with me the kindness and the severity of God. It's in the book of Romans. He's both and, and never either or. Jesus is not a nice guy. Jesus is threatening in some instances. You know, it's like the, the Narnia Chronicles speak of Aslan, the, the lion. He's, he's good, but he's not safe. He's not safe, but he's good. He's all of the above. The Nicolaitans were known for what you could call syncretism, identifying as followers of Christ, but there are certain areas of their lives where they were not in submission or surrender to the ethics of Christ. Specifically, they had adopted and allowed to come into their professing Christian community the sexual ethic of uh, the world, of the Roman Empire, which was quite compatible with, with the prevailing sexual ethic of the modern West. And Jesus says, I hate that. I don't hate the people, but I hate what this way of life and what this teaching is doing to people. It's a self-mutilating belief system and behavior system. And so he's opposed to the idea that Christianity is all grace, no truth. That's another way of saying codependent enabling. Live and let live. Do what you like. Who am I to judge? Who are we to judge? And in a sense, we're, we're called not to judge one another's hearts, but, but there are certain behaviors that, 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 that can, and, and, and as the Scriptures themselves point us out, need to be pointed out. Galatians 6, if any of you is caught in a pattern of transgression, you who are spiritual need to restore them gently, lest you too be tempted. You know, Jesus' fury at death in John chapter 11 is because He has a love for life. Jesus' fury when He's turning over tables in church, flipping tables in anger in the temple. It's in Matthew 21. That is an expression of His love for pure worship. And then you've got Matthew 23, where he offers this fierce, scathing critique of the scribes and Pharisees, religious bullies, holier-than-thou holier connoisseurs of righteousness. And Jesus says, you don't know the first thing about righteousness. Pimps and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven before you are. You're whitewashed tombs. You look all pretty in the, on, the, on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. You have no life to you. You're snakes. You're just like the serpent in the garden. A brood of vipers. I mean, he's fierce. He's sharp. He's scathing. He's not nice. He's good, but he's not safe. And then Galatians chapter 1. I mean, this is, this is the, the letter of all letters about the grace and love and kindness and adopting care of God the Father toward his children, of the mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ is given to us free of charge that affirms over and over and over again that there's never a ditch that you have to dig yourself out of with God. The grace of God is right there for you all the time, for the taking. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. And how does that book of grace begin? I am astonished that you who began so well with Christ have abandoned what you started with. 
false teachers, legalism, Jesus plus something else you have to have, Jewish culture, Jewish behavior, Jewish politics, Jewish dietary laws, Jewish observation. You have to become culturally Jewish to be really a Christian. And what does Paul say? I wish you would cut your genitals off. That's what he says. I wish you would cut your genitals off. I wish you would emasculate yourselves rather than continue with this teaching. It is toxic. And there's no room for toxins in my family. He's fierce. Being doctrinaire is not good. Being doctrinal is absolutely essential for health. You know, the Bible talks about the importance of sound doctrine. The word sound in the original Greek means healthy, which means that if, if our ideas are not congruent and not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, then, then it follows that there are going to be unhealthy outcomes in our belief systems as well as in our ethics. You know, words like fanaticism and fundamentalism, those are words that have negative connotations now for us because of all the baggage around them. But don't you want your oncologist to be a fundamentalist about how he's going to or she's going to attack your cancer? Don't you want your oncologist to be a fanatic enemy of your cancer? Or would you rather have an oncologist that says, you know, we don't want to hurt your cancer's feelings? We don't want to create a socially awkward moment with your cancer. We want to love your cancer and affirm your cancer where we can. No. We want to attack it. I am more angry about your disease than you are because I care for you. That's all Jesus is after here. And He's, he's praising a church for, for being fierce about bad, unhealthy behaviors and bad, unhealthy ideas. Two affirmations, your faithful endurance, your holy hatred. I love you for these things. I don't love you because of them, but I love you for them. I love you that you've engaged these things that I love as well. But then there's one criticism, and that's the unholy hatred that they are expressing mainly through their passivity toward both God and neighbor. And the first and greatest commandment is to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus comes in and he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. This was likely true in their love for people. You know, we see this, it's, there's a hint of this when, when he calls them to repent and he says, do the works that you did at first. So, so our faith is, is how we interact with God. Our works is how we express our faith toward our neighbor. And he says, return to the works. So there's a suggestion here that there's at least a subtle emphasis on a neighbor love that has been abandoned over the years. You know, perhaps their legitimate hatred for heresies and for the deeds of the Nicolaitans has actually translated over time and, and declined over time into a hatred for the Nicolaitans themselves a declared enemy that we now rally around and we build our community around whoever it is that we're, we hate and whatever it is that we're against. You become grumpy saints instead of the life-giving ones that you once were. 
You know, Anne Lamott famously said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. We see this in Luke 18 where the Pharisee is demonstrating contempt for others even in his prayers. Thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. Christian fanaticism, though, does not… When people experience your true Christian fanaticism, they're not going to experience the Nicolaitans in your life, whoever they are, whatever they look like. They're not going to experience you as somebody who is fanatically angry at them. They're going to experience you as somebody who is fanatically against their unhealth because you are fanatically for their health. Christian fanaticism looks like this. Peter betrays Jesus three times, and when Jesus comes back from the dead, he makes sure that Peter is the first one who gets the message loud and clear, I'm coming to you. It's all good, man. No hole for you to dig yourself out of. We're good. That's what Christian fanaticism looks like. Christian fanaticism looks like Jesus looking His mortal enemy Judas in the eye and calling Judas friend, even as Judas is in the act of betraying Him. Fanaticism from a Christian perspective looks like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem who's rejected Him because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Christian fanaticism looks like Jesus glancing at the rich ruler who's walking away in declared unbelief and loving him. That's what Christian fanaticism looks like. Christian fanaticism confounds your enemies. Political fanaticism, people know that you hate them from your political fanaticism. But your Christian fanaticism, your enemies, those who don't hold your ideas are confounded because you strangely love them, even though you are so fiercely different. They'd also lost their love for God. You know, I know your deeds, I know your hard work. It's just another way of saying, you've been dutifully by my side in this marriage, but a long time ago you started to ignore my face. You don't look me in the eyes anymore. You don't talk to me from the heart anymore. You're dutifully at my side. You're spending all this energy doing things for me, but you've lost interest in being with me. You're distracted. You agree with my ideas, but you never kiss me anymore. I reach out my hand to you and you don't grab on and hold it. We're in a loveless marriage, God says, and it's not because I've budged. It's not because I've drifted from you. It's because you've drifted from me. Connoisseurs of religion, that's what you've become. You are wood with no fire. You are seed without water and heat. You are electricity without an outlet. You are a skeleton with no skin and no flesh. Chesterton famously said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. The Ephesians had lost that. They'd lost the romance. You know, N.T. Wright, this is, this is a chilling lesson from church history. 
N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this text, reminds us that the one thing that we do not see in Ephesus today is an active church. How terrifying is that? Not even the Apostle Paul who planted the church, not even young Timothy, the mentee of the Apostle Paul who pastored the church, not even the insertion of the Ephesian church in the canon of Scripture was enough to fix and revive and to restore this church. It doesn't exist anymore. That is a cautionary tale. But there's one way forward, and it's this. Do the works that you did at first. If you've seen the, the movie, This Is Us, you know, speaking of, of marriage, if you've seen, or not the movie, the show, This Is Us, maybe they'll make a movie someday, but you may remember that, that, that scene where Miguel announces to his best friend Jack that, that, that he and his wife are splitting, that they're going to divorce. And Jack said, we, we had no idea there was anything wrong. What happened? And Miguel said, well, for all of our marriage, I would, I would get up early and prepare the coffee, and she'd come down, and there'd be coffee for her. And at some point, I just stopped doing that. And then at some point, she just stopped noticing, and we just kind of both drifted. You know, like a marriage, like a garden, returning to the love means daily cultivation, weeding the garden, putting water on it, exposing it to light. How do we do this? Maybe by first considering another cautionary tale, the church at Corinth, also plagued with a love deficit. Chapter 13, which is the world-famous chapter on love in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, it shows that they had the illusion of faith without actually having the vitality of faith. They were speaking in tongues. In other words, they were experiencing signs and wonders among them. They had prophetic powers. Some of the be best preaching in the world was happening in Corinth, Corinthian churches. They could understand mysteries and knowledge that they, they were watertight in their theology and doctrine and their ideas. Their behaviors and thoughts were formed by the Bible. They had faith to move mountains. They had miracle workers among them, healings and such. They were giving away all that they had to the poor. They were fiercely philanthropic, just like the city of Nashville. They would even offer their bodies up to martyrdom if they had to. And Jesus answered all that is, this I have against you. This I have against you. If you have all of these things, you just have the appearance of religion. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. If you don't have love, you've got nothing. And I'm going to remove your lampstand. You become a wood without fire, a seed without water, electricity without an outlet, skeleton without flesh and skin. Where's the corrective happen? happen? You know, we remember forward. That's motivating. There's a tree of life promised on the other side. There's a paradise of God that's promised on the other side. But there's also a remembering backward. Let me, let me close with this story as we lead into communion. This is a story from the Gospels, the thief on the cross. He's crucified right, right next to Jesus. He hasn't been baptized. He's never done anything in his life to merit a promise or a blessing from God. And the man, sort of his last ditch, last breath, looks over at Jesus and says, Lord, will you please remember me when you're in glory? And Jesus turns to him and says, sir, today you, you're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me and my disciples and 
the faithful women who showed up at the cross after my disciples fled. You're going to be with me. If this says anything to us, it is this. There is no hole for you to dig yourself out of with Jesus Christ. No other religion in the world will tell you that you don't have a hole to dig yourself out of. You know, Mel Gibson shows up in the Passion of the Christ one time. You know where it is? It's the hand that's driving the nails into the cross. Rembrandt, in his epic painting, The Last Supper, inserts a self-portrait into the painting. You know where he puts his own face? His face is the face of Judas. It's an artistic cry. Lord, could you possibly remember me? To which Jesus says, I have already experienced the loss of love. I was forsaken by my people, but I was also forsaken by my Father, so that my Father would never have to forsake you. So eat this bread, drink this cup, be awakened. And let your religion once again be not a theory, but a love affair. Return to the love that you had at first and start by the simple realization that there is no hole for you to dig yourself out of and I have never budged. I'll never leave you and I never will. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We are all the thief on the cross. We are all Mel Gibson. We are all Rembrandt with the face of Judas. We are all Peter having denied you. We are all the church at Ephesus. We are all the church at Corinth who mask ourselves with religion and righteousness so often when all you've called us to do is to receive love. The amazing thing about that, Lord, is when we lay our works down, when we lay our offerings and our contributions and what, you, what, what the hymn writer calls our deadly doings down, and your love kicks in, saturates our hearts, ignites us, sets fire to the wood, adds water to the seed, provides an outlet for the electricity, and flesh to the skeleton. Lord, when you do that, then things like love and service and faithfulness become natural and the joy of our hearts. Let it be so and feed us and nourish us with the bread and the cup now to that end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.